Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Hi, Claudia. I spoke with you earlier today. Um, you said to call you after my appointment with my doctor. Um, it was a terrible appointment. He didn't realize that his wife had written the prescription, so he thought I was taking um, extra amount on my own. And he just started yelling at me, and you know, it's like you just the model drug-seeking behaviors this emotionality and I didn't even know what he was mad at me about and then I told him I had the bottle right in front of him. like oh I'm so sorry it wasn't your fault he thought again that I was taking the meds on my own doubling them on my own and I would never ever do that thank you for taking time out of your week tuning into this episode brought to you by the doctor patient forum I'm Claudia Mirandi and joining us is the vice president of the doctor patient forum Bev Schechtman And what you folks just heard is one of the thousands and thousands of voicemails that we receive from pain patients who have been victimized by the healthcare system. And today we're going to be discussing why people are being documented as drug seekers. Beth, I think that term drug seeking is the most degrading term. And years ago, you said to me, we need to replace drug seeking with pain relief seeking. Do you remember that? I do. With the push to remove stigma from addiction, which I think is amazing, it needs to happen. No one seems to be um, extending that to pain patients at all. And I think whether someone is going to a doctor in pain needing medication or going to a doctor even in withdrawal, if they do have addiction issues needing medication, in no case is it okay just to call them a drug seeker. They're all relief seeking something, whether it's relief seeking from physical pain or relief seeking from withdrawal. I just don't feel like it's a good term at all that's that's ever really used to help a patient. And you might think these uh, monster nonprofit organizations like Shatterproof would help remove that term, drug seeking, but I, I almost feel like they've worsened the stigma. They have. They want everyone to... Um, be kind to people with addiction. Like I said, they should be, but everything goes out the window if it's someone in pain who refuses to say that they have addiction issues. I always say this right now in our country when it comes to drug use, I feel the most hated group are patients in pain on opioids who don't have addiction and won't say that they have addiction because they don't. Junkie is allowed to be used and they're allowed to be nasty. I mean, there was one time the pain management doctor was so nasty to me. And I told him that I had uh, a colonoscopy coming up for Crohn's because I was afraid that the, the medications they use to put you to sleep would show up on a drug test. He looked at me and he said, well, you're going to love that. And I was like, I'm going to love what? Like who loves a colonoscopy? And he made the hand motion of pushing a medication into an IV. And he was like, you're going to love when that hits your veins. I didn't even know what to say. I was in shock because (laughs) you can't say anything, right? Like everything is a red flag. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. Every single thing is considered a red flag. That is something that we've been trying to help patients with too 
sort of coach them before their appointment. I wish it didn't have to be this way. Not that we're telling them to not tell the truth, but saying to them, here are some key things they're looking for. So be careful not to do these things. But unfortunately, a lot of the red flags even contradict themselves. And so it's really hard to know what's okay to say and what's not okay. You tell your physician that your pain medication is working according to, you know, the the hate organization prop, well, then you're a liar because there's no way your pain medication could work. If you don't cry loudly enough, then you're a drug seeker. And if you're too comfortable when you present to the emergency department, then you're also a drug seeker. So there's there's really no way to win. Right. I was doing a little bit of research for this uh, podcast and I I printed out the earliest I could find of what they call uh, red flags for drug seeking behavior. And one thing to know is that the deep. The DEA created a lot of these. And so I don't even think much of this was created by doctors. I think it was created by law enforcement to go after doctors or patients. And so there's a set of red flags for pharmacists. And then there's a set of red flags for physicians, both of what like to look for in a patient. Uh, Before I read some of these red flags, I did ask on Twitter, just what some doctors think about the term drug seeking behavior, if they think that it's helpful, if they think that it's something that's just there to stigmatize a patient. I got a response from said the expression is one that conveys something about the clinician's discomfort with the behavior or the request. And he said, doctors may say it as a shorthand because something has made them uncomfortable, but it's clearly not a diagnostic term. It really does say more about the doctor or the pharmacist being uncomfortable than it does about the patient. But the first drug-seeking behavior I was able to find as far as a list was from 1999. And this was from the DEA. And they actually labeled this don't be scammed by a drug abuser. And they went on to say that it's the doctor's legal and ethical responsibility to um, not give medication. How to tell the difference between a legitimate patient and a drug abuser. As if, first of all, I know we don't use the term drug abuser anymore, but this is what the DEA did in 1999. You know, as if a patient who does have OUD isn't a legitimate patient, right there, the stigma is so intense. So they list common characteristics of a drug abuser. And I'm just going to read some of these. Unusual behavior in the waiting room, assertive personality demanding immediate attention, unusual appearance, either extreme of slovenliness or being overdressed, showing unusual knowledge of controlled substances, or being evasive and giving vague answers, not knowing anything about controlled substances, knowing a lot about their history, knowing nothing about their history, reluctant or unwilling to provide reference information, um, having no health insurance, will often request a specific controlled drug and is reluctant to try another. And that's kind of what you said, Claudia. So everything is, is so contradictory. And a lot of times, like, what if you go to a doctor and you're like, this is the antidepressant that works for me. That's not a red flag. But all of a sudden, when it has to do with pain, it's a red flag. And, you know, you, you can't cry. You can't not cry. You can't be dressed well. You can't not be dressed well. And then one of the most common ones is living far away from wherever you are. So if a patient is far away from the hospital or the provider, that's immediately a red flag. I think these red flags are quite outdated and misleading. In the 90s, maybe when there were actual pill mills in Florida, you would have a group of patients or or people all pile into a van, drive down to Florida, get their medication, drive back up and sell it, right? That did Mm -hmm. happen. But in 2022, I would be shocked if any of that 
ever took place. So I know at least in my state in North Carolina, when we have patients contact us who have been dismissed from their provider or have lost their provider for whatever reason, it's hard enough to find a doctor even within North Carolina, let alone in their town. So the fact that living a distance from a doctor is a red flag, and that's worked into every single like narcs care or PDMP metric, any risk score out there, it seems has that one thing in there. And so I do, I feel like a lot of them are outdated. The same thing as like, having more than one provider because it's so common to lose your doctor now. So as soon as you lose your doctor, obviously if you get another doctor, that's gonna be your second provider within two years and they will be flagged as well as the patient. Now we all know that so many of us have had it in our charts without even knowing. Another one that I kind of want to touch on that we haven't mentioned yet is this whole concept of if someone says they're allergic to a certain medication that's not an opioid. And this is an experience that I've had. So in that horrible hospital experience where I spoke about in the last episode of being denied opioids because I have a history of childhood sexual abuse. One thing that the hospitalist said to me was, we don't even use opioids for kidney stones anymore. We just use NSAIDs. And I said to him, you know, I have Crohn's and I've always been told that we're not supposed to take NSAIDs with Crohn's. I've been told that by every doctor I've ever seen for Crohn's disease, including in the hospital. And he was like, you're lying. That's not true. You're drug seeking. And then in my chart, what he actually wrote was that patient absolutely refused any non-opioid medication. He didn't say why. I didn't refuse any. The only one he offered was an NSAID. So it's like it's put in there. And I don't understand. I think maybe it's put in there to, in case a patient complains, to give a doctor kind of a reason why they they treated them a certain way or denied opioids. I don't know, but we're seeing more and more that there certainly are a lot of pain patients who have that label in their chart just because they're chronic pain patients on opioids. Drug-seeking, malingering. And wasn't that, which one of those hateful beasts from prop, Anna Lemke <laughs> or Jane Ballantyne, which beast discusses well, that? They both actually do, but Anna Lemke has one of the most offensive presentations I've ever seen in my entire life. She's one of the original prop members. She's also um, like a serial expert witness for litigation who knows how much money she made, has made on it, I'm assuming in the millions, but they don't have to list it, right? So we'll never know. I wish they would have to list it. Maybe someday they will. But she has this presentation where she shows all the different patients and I wish I had it in front of me because I didn't even think to look it up. Um, Kalani and Lemke are both psychiatrists who are repeatedly given a platform about how to treat pain. And I'm not really sure why that is, but it is. You know, I often wonder why these psychiatrists are so hateful. What happened in their younger life that would make them so hateful? Why do these people have a penchant for the disabled? Why these people are so filled with hate and venom towards the disabled community. And the fact that I think Lemke and Kolodny both testified in opioid litigation, and I'm not sure what happened with those lawsuits, but I don't think they won. <laughs> I think they won some and some they didn't. They both have done it uh, multiple times. I don't know that we'll ever know how often. One thing that I know about Lemke is she says this a lot, that her father was like a 
a functional alcoholic, I think she says. And so when she first became a doctor, she absolutely never wanted to see anyone with addiction issues. So I think hers kind of stems from hatred of people who have addiction. These people who are pushing to remove stigma from addiction, who have the national platform, they hate people who use drugs. You will never convince me that they actually are concerned for them. Their hatred for pain patients stems from their hatred for people who use drugs. And then there's some others across the country who are in this like anti-opioid zealot group. And if you hear them talk, some of them have had a patient who has overdosed and died. Um, and so it's like they've gone all the way in the other direction and have decided to punish every patient who ever comes in and to never uh, think that they are quote unquote legitimate patients, which let me tell you, that term needs to be removed because there's no such thing as an illegitimate patient. All patients are legitimate. Whatever the reason they're presenting, don't say they're illegitimate. I mean, how incredibly nasty is that? Sue Berman, she's a big one with that. She always talks about illegitimate pain patients. It makes me so upset. To know that these people are have been given a platform, it's scary. You know, there's another idiot stick out of, I think he's out of Colorado, <laughs> Don Stater, another one who gets a con yep. who monetizes off speaking against the disabled. It, it was you who found, um, I guess you saw him speak where he was while he's drinking a beer. So he's drinking alcohol. Yeah. He, and he's mocking people who need opiates who go yeah. to the and he's an emergency room physician. Yeah. And you know, he said, Oh, you know, if they come into the emergency room, just make sure they have a ride home and tell them that they're going to get the good stuff and give them ketamine for pain. So it was actually to give them worse than ketamine, Haldol. And that's exactly what he said. He was like, just say you're going to need a ride when you go home and you're going to get the good stuff and then give them the generic name for Haldol so they won't know what it is. He mocks pain patients all the time. He's another prop member. But the one thing all of these people have in common is they all say any organization who stands up for pain patients are all working for opioid lobby and taking money, yet they have made so much money off of this false narrative of opioid elimination. They really created this industry. And you'll hear us talk about this a lot because they did create an industry of opioid elimination for multiple reasons. But the biggest one that we think is uh, opioid litigation, this litigation narrative. I think I mentioned it before. They've They've gotten at least $38 billion so far in our country. They all are part of it. They've either been expert witnesses in litigation. They have consulting firms where the government has hired them. The DOJ has hired them. And they've made a lot of money, but nobody seems to care about that part of it at all. No one cares. No one cares about seeing how much they've made. But uh, even on Twitter this morning with a dentist, he said, well, obviously, we know that you get paid for lobbying for right. opioids. I saw that and I said, uh, no, obviously, you get paid for not treating pain with opioids. We don't receive funding from pharma. We receive, you know, donations only because everybody else is being paid to speak out against opiates. And I think probably every one of my TikToks, I say, the only people who speak out against opioids are those who are being paid to. These people don't do this out of the goodness of their heart. These yes. are bad people. Yes. They own, they're addicted to two things, money and lying. Now, let's say you were documented as a drug seeker. Let, let's just review. So if you go yes. to the emergency room, you can't look too good and you can't look too bad. Now, you can't be in too much pain and you can't be in too little pain. And you have to have insurance. 
Because if you don't have insurance, lights out. Forget so it. Yes. You are damned if you do, damned if you don't. And what I'm trying to do in Rhode Island is I'm trying to make it an actionable offense to withhold pain medication from a person in a hospital setting. And it should be an actionable offense. And some doctors have given me some shit like, Claudia, you're supposed to support the doctors. I do support the doctors. I don't support dishonest doctors. You treat that person's pain when they go to the emergency room, you have imaging. And I think a lot of these doctors, especially the younger doctors, once again, raised on the cell phone devices, raised on iPads, they can't make eye contact, but they're easily intimidated. They're easily broken. We can't hurt their feelings. But yet, These little sociopaths have no problem documenting somebody as drug seeking. And I don't think these physician assistants or these uh, medical doctors know the harm that they can do to a person's reputation because those medical records are worked into the electronic health record system, which is then worked into some crazy algorithm. Uh, and it's going to stop. It's it's a really, it's a big issue. I want to mention the, the voicemail we played at the beginning. Um, and that was a patient who... Uh, she had called, I guess, for some extra medication because her pain had increased. Someone from the office did approve that medication. The doctor didn't realize it. So when they saw that she had taken more, whether through the prescription history or whatever, he actually started yelling at her. And then he started reprimanding her for being emotional. He called it emotionality. And a lot of these red flags, as I mentioned before, are written by lawyers. They're written by attorneys general or they're written written by the DEA and, and law enforcement. Here's one that was written by law enforcement. Word for word says, if your patient exaggerates the symptoms, a patient can walk into the office fine, but hold a hurting body part or start moaning in pains once in your presence. Don't be fooled by tears. Many drug seekers are convincing actor. You know, you have some other red flags also written by attorneys general. This is but one in Georgia. If the patient can't afford an MRI and doesn't have any imaging, that's a red flag. But if the patient presents MRI imaging at their first appointment, that's also a red flag. If the patient carpools, a lot of these are contradictory. A big part of the problem is we don't know when they're in our record. A lot of us don't realize that they're putting them in there. And I think it's really, really important for patients to know that they're there. So we have a link and I'll post it in the show notes of um, all about electronic health records, how to access them. It is everybody's right legally to get a copy of your medical record. We always recommend sending a certified letter with a signature receipt so that you have evidence you asked. From the day they get that request, they have 30 days to give it to you. If they need more time for whatever reason, they must tell you that and tell you they need another 30 days. But that 60 day is maximum. And if they refuse to give it to you, it's a violation of HIPAA and information blocking laws. We have all this information on the link I'm going to post. Um, So let's talk about some patients who have had it in their records. I was able to get on Facebook and on Twitter, I asked for some experiences. If anyone had it in their record, this is someone on Facebook. They said, I went to the hospital. I went to the emergency room. I had pulmonary emboli. I hadn't been diagnosed, but the nurse kept yelling at me for drug seeking, telling me how bad OxyContin is. I was dying with diagnosed PE in both lungs. They were filled with clots. Once I was diagnosed, I was put in the ICU after six hours in the ER. I definitely was seeking drugs because I couldn't breathe. This is when I knew that there was actually something wrong with hospitals. 
Another one, they talk about being labeled as a drug seeker um, in their records and they're trying to get it out of it. And this is another one that, that says- that Look at this one from somebody. Every yeah. doctor I go to says, just to be clear, don't ever ask me for pain medication because I don't believe in opioids. Then you can't be an emergency room provider if you right? don't believe in opioids. How do you not believe in opioids? Yeah. I want to read- it's ridiculous. And I, and people don't realize how often this is happening. I mean, it's happening all the time. I feel as though just presenting in pain is the biggest red flag of all right now. Didn't you talk to a nurse in that hospital who's supposed to send us some, you know, information anonymously? And she said, if the patients have their legs crossed, that's a red flag. Didn't she tell you that? Yes, yes. Because every hospital has their own policy how to know if somebody's drug seeking and if if your legs are crossed. Now, granted, I, I've got to be honest. Every time I've gone to the emergency room in a Crohn's flare, I'm I can't even speak. I'm usually vomiting out of my nose, yeah. rocking back and forth. Yeah. And just the past week, another bowel obstruction I had. Oh, I can't God. think straight. When I have a bowel obstruction or I'm in a Crohn's flare, I can't think. My mouth gets dry. I get chill. Like, you know, you have to worry. Am I in too much pain? Am I not in enough pain? But I'll tell you what. It took me only one time a doctor accused me of drug seeking, which led me to this organization and getting legislation. See, one time. That's all I needed. What happened in that one time? What happened with that experience? Uh, Dr. Otis Warren of Merriam Hospital told my mom and myself, my mom's in the next room, she's 87. He said, oh, I just read your last CAT scan and I spoke with your gastroenterologist. He said, you're, you're all clear. You don't have Crohn's disease anymore. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, I was like, oh my God, I don't. I, for a minute, I felt like a sense of relief. Maybe they knew something. And then we called the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist started laughing. He said, what are you talking about? And I was discharged. My port was accessed. I was discharged and I got rushed in and I went in for emergency surgery and I had to get a colostomy bag. That was my, that's the one time it happened. And to this day, I police Dr. Otis Warren at Miriam Hospital. As you should. It's horrible. And what people also don't understand is these experiences are so traumatizing. That experience I had in the hospital was so traumatizing that I'm terrified to go back even when I need to. I had 105 fever in January from COVID. I was too afraid to go to the hospital. So I'm like messaging a doctor that we advocate with asking him like, what's the maximum I could take to get this fever down because I'm too scared to step foot in the hospital. And that's a problem. I think a lot of people have medical PTSD. But of course, you know, PTSD is also a red flag. So we can't even tell them that you know, that we're, we're damaged from any of this, because that's another part of this that's so dangerous. Any mental health diagnosis and any like sexual abuse history, see, it is a red flag because, you know, they say it, it, it causes you to be too, um, an increased risk to develop addiction, which I understand that. Some of them do um, ha- make you have an increased risk of addiction, but what's supposed to happen is the doctor's supposed to keep a closer eye on you. They're not supposed to just deny treatment at all. And so if a patient's struggling with some kind of mental health issue, they really can't be honest about it because then all of a sudden you're going to be looked at as a drug seeker. And also just so you know, women and people of color 
are often flagged at a way higher rate than men or um, someone who is white. It's just facts. There's a lot of studies about it and I wish it wouldn't happen, but it's just the way it is. I want to read this one example because I want to talk about pharmacies for a minute. Um, So this person said, I went to several pharmacies to try and fill my pain medication. After going to 10 or so, I was crying and broken and went into a Walgreens, Walgreens to find out what else I can do. The pharmacist proceeds to tell me that I'm a drug addict and I need to clean out and clean out and stop ruining everyone's life around me. I explained to her my disease and begged for help. And she told me she was calling the cops on me because all addicts should be rounded up and shot. The cop showed up and told me to leave. I was so broken and disgusted, but I kept trying to find a pharmacy to fill my prescription. So let's talk about pharmacies for a second. Something we hear a lot of from pain patients is, you know, they're able to get a prescription, but they're not able to get a pharmacist to fill it. And before we start hating on pharmacists, I want to say that the DEA is going after pharmacists. What they are told is that if they see any of these red flags, and I'm going to list some in a minute that, that the DEA lists for pharmacists, and they don't resolve them then they could be breaking the law. I've never found out what it means to resolve them because I don't, you know, we've asked around, like, do they have their own note taking or records where the DEA could see what they've written? Have you ever found out what, what, what they mean by that, by resolving them, Claudia? No, I don't know where these pharmacists would document this. We, we, we know that when you get a controlled substance filled, it's listed on your state's PDMP. Other than that, I don't know where pharmacists document anything. You know, if you're a pharmacist who's listening to this, make sure you reach out to us because we can help you folks out if you ever, you know, if you're ever visited by the DEA. Uh, We've had several pharmacists contact us, pharmacy owners. So they're also under siege by the government. This is a never ending, but I, I my answer to you is no. Yeah, it is never ending. And I do know we mentioned in the last episode about the Ruan case, it was um, a Supreme Court decision that ruled in our favor nine to zero, which basically says that it is okay for for them to use the defense of prescribing in good faith. And um, that means that the government basically has to prove that the doctor intended harm when they wrote a prescription. And I know uh, Ron Chapman has submitted something to try to make sure that's extended to pharmacists. Um, and I hope that that works. We'll keep you posted on that information. But here's some, in- some things just from the DEA for pharmacists about what should they consider as a red flag. They have something called unsolvable red flags, traveling long distances to fill a prescription. For a pharmacist, if a prescription, if a patient has a prescription for immediate release rather than long acting, that's considered a red flag. And if they have it for for months in a row and it's the same dose of short acting, that's considered a red flag. But if you look at what they have listed for prescribers, it's the opposite. So extended release is considered a red flag. And then um, cash purchases. And we even saw in a in one of the cases against a Rite Aid that, you know, we all know that that, you know, Mendel and, and others have pushed for co-prescribing laws, which means in the states that require it now that there's that if a patient has a certain dosage of opioid, they are required to also get a prescription for Narcan. I don't know how many states we have it listed on our website. But in this specific Rite Aid case, it was in a state where the the doctor or the prescriber was required to prescribe Narcan, yet the DEA used that as a red flag and said that pharmacist just 
seeing that that doctor wrote for Narcan should have told that pharmacist that that prescriber knows that patient is high risk for overdose. And so he shouldn't have filled the opioid. So, I mean, it would be comical if it weren't true, but the fact that these things keep happening is, is so ridiculous. So, you know, something that we try also is to talk to pharmacists and, you know, we try to find out why they're not filling. We've heard, I think you've told me that some pharmacists are even taught to kind of lie and say they don't have the medication or something. What did you say about that? Yeah, somebody, I, I advocated for somebody who couldn't get their Suboxone filled. The pharmacist said that they did not have it in stock. And then I called another pharmacy right around the corner, same, it was CVS. And I was told that they did have it in stock because the covering pharmacist was at the other pharmacy. Yes, that's how small Rhode Island is. (laughs) And, And then I'm being told that a pharmacist can't just deny filling it. They have to, uh, you know, refer you to another pharmacy who will fill it. I don't know if there's any truth to that statement, but, uh, listen, you don't have to pay for Narcan. You call your governor's office and you have them give you uh, a list of nonprofits who provide it for free. Nobody should be paying for Narcan. This was another part of this ridiculous opioid settlement funds. Everybody should be getting Narcan for free. In my opinion, everybody should be getting everything for free because where's this $40 billion going to? (laughs) That's a really good question. We'll put in the show notes. We do have some harm reduction resources on our website where you can get Narcan um, so we'll, we will make sure to put that in the show notes so you can see, uh, where you can get it, um, in case that you're in one of those States where it's required. And I do think it's, you know, I'm all for Narcan. I think it's an amazing resource. I think really everyone should have it, but the people who are overdosing, they're not mostly pain patients unless they're denied opioids and going to the street. So for an 80 year old woman who's taking Vicodin every day for 30 years to make her um, have Narcan, it's not really going to help her. The only thing it would do is if, you know, she's around someone else who might be overdosing, if they they have taken some form of illicit drugs, then she could use it. You know, it is helpful to have in the house because I have heard cases where an animal has got into someone's medication or a child, um, even an elderly patient with dementia. Like I've heard all of those things and, and Narcan does work. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to have That leads me to the next point. Um, Always lock up your medication. There's no reason to not lock up your medication. I think our government doesn't put so much focus on that because it's like they'd rather talk about never prescribing. And I guess if they focus on locking up the medication, then they'd have to admit that some people should be getting medication. But there's never a reason to not lock it up. Keep Keep yourself safe from... Um, anyone who tries to take it from you or from pets or from children. It's just a good idea to have that locked up. You know, Bev, while you just brought up a good point about the elderly getting Narcan. So while you're talking about it, I just texted my mom in the next room and she hasn't seen any overdoses at the senior center. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, and that's true, right? I mean, we saw so stupid. Come on. This is the the con of this century. You don't need my 87 year old mother doesn't need Narcan any more than she needs one of your stupid, dumb spinal cord stimulator. This is the con of the century. You know, last night I was out with my my daughters. I said to the 21-year-old, you should have Narcan on you. I've got friends who are doctors and they feel like they have to prescribe Narcan with every visit. And if that's going to keep them safe, prescribe it. But it's the con of the century. And I'll tell you what. An 80-year-old person isn't going to be able to Narcan themselves back to life. Exactly. Is- exactly. 
passing right they're not going to and that just you know that brings me to a point Claudia that I, I feel like I've been saying this repeatedly lately but it's so true I feel like doctors are making medical decisions based on fear of investigation instead of what's based on what's best for the patient. And that's why we're in this mess. I mean, I like I said, I have no problem with people getting Narcan. I think people should have Narcan, but I don't think, just have everyone get it. Why only give it to patients who are on opioids? Just have everyone have Narcan. So many people are overdosing and dying. And I think it would be a good thing for everyone to have a free Narcan to carry with them in case in case they're around someone who does overdose or have um, or are poisoned from drugs that they that they think are one thing and end up being another. But yeah, it's it's crazy. The whole thing is is insane. And and these red flags, I think that doctors feel pressured because, you know, what if they have a patient who um, exhibit some of these so-called red flags and they still prescribe and then the DEA can come after them or the state medical board or someone like Bamboo Health with NARCS care, which is another risk score. So they really can't make decisions on what they think should happen, right? It's always based on fear of investigation. So that's why one thing we do is fight to keep, we need to keep law enforcement out of our doctor's offices. We just need them out so that doctors can be doctors again and not have to act like parole officers and treating pain patients like they're parolees. I mean, Claudia, some of these pain contracts where we have to ask for permission to leave the state, right? Or be available for these random pill counts and random urine screens. And it's just nuts. Like I think I've told you when I was first in pain management, my father's brother died and I had to let them know. And they were like, well, if you go out of state, you know, we can't tell you not to go. But um, if you do go and we do call you for a random urine screen or um, random pill count, it will go down as breach of contract. And so patients are terrified. Doctors are terrified. It's just a really bad situation. Let's talk about how to find out if it's in your records, just in case we have some patients um, who are listening, who it's in your records. Uh, We also want to tell you, um, we want to hear from you. Contact us. Let us know. Have you been accused of drug seeking? Has it been in your medical records? Let us know. Um, You can use the hashtag DPF2 for Doctor Patient Forum Episode 2. So hashtag DPF2. Let us know um, your experiences with this. We want to hear from all of you. Claudia, how many of the patients we hear from are, do we tell do tell us that they have drug seeking behavior in their chart? It's a lot, isn't it? I mean, more than fifty percent. Can I say one thing? Sure. We are, why is Ann Milgram the head, the DEA <laughs> administrator, and why aren't you helping? I mean, this is a this is a woman in power. Uh, you know these. I mean, Ann Milgram, she can actually she can write this situation. It's the DEA who has caused irreparable harm with these crazy red flags. It's, you know, attorney generals like that, that idiot, Josh Shapiro out of Pennsylvania. Absolutely. He actually tweets, I can, I vow to arrest doctors (laughs) who have caused the opioid. You idiot. No doctors have, no doctors write illicit substances. Same with that other friggin' dope, Kenneth Polite, the Department of Justice, right? He's like, doctors continue to prescribe illicit substances. Kenneth, you friggin' moron. Doctors <laughs> don't write, doctors don't write scripts for street drugs. Yeah, it's not, you know, one concept of harm reduction, which a lot of people don't agree with is 
this concept of safe supply. So no one would ever say this person should divert their medication and that's the right thing to do. No one says that. But in you, if you want to look at the facts of it, if a patient is diverting their medication, whoever is buying it is getting safe supply and they're not going to die. So every time you take a doctor out, even the patients who were diverting their medication, you're actually going to kill those those people also who were buying it. You know, we do know the DEA, these strike forces, these task forces, we've heard in podcasts that one of the biggest purposes of what they're doing, what they want to happen is that if other doctors are scared into stopping prescribing, that that's a win for them. So they want to scare doctors. They want them to stop prescribing. But I really can't think of one situation where it would help anybody for them to deny someone pain medication when they need it. Like, who is it helping? You want to send them to the street for them to die? You want to send them at home to want to commit suicide? I mean, who is it actually helping? And then if it is someone with addiction who isn't ready to um, go into treatment of some kind or start on Suboxone or Methadone, then at least it's keeping them alive. I know it's illegal in this country to prescribe opioids to somebody to treat addiction other than Suboxone and Methadone clinics. But why is that even a thing? Like, why is it illegal? So it's better for them to go to the street and get an illicit supply and die? I mean, sure. Sure. It's the DEA, right? I mean, this is how we continuously fund the DEA. And people have been fighting what Harry Anslinker has done to this country a gazillion years ago. People have been fighting this same war and we continue the war on opioids. Who is he Uh, again? Tell us again who Harry Anslinger is. It wasn't he under the the Nixon administration. Harry Anslinger is where this all began, the hate for drugs. Yeah. Uh, and then Nixon ran with it. And then before you know it, we have the Controlled Substances Act, yeah. which has been weaponized. So now doctors uh, pose as police officers yeah. slash detectives slash, uh, you know, physician, a doctor cannot prescribe peacefully. I no. mean, this, this nope. is very, very scary. Of course, I mean, I would be incredibly fearful to prescribe. Yes. You know, even now the 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 war on the uh, benzos, the war yep. on Vivance, the war on the, the stimulant. So everybody, unlike any other cause in this country, like unlike any other hot topic, this this issue will fo- will will hurt everybody because everybody knows somebody with cancer. Everybody knows an elderly person. And when you need the opiates, they're not going to be there for you. And when you try to defend why opiates are necessary, oh my God, the indoctrination is so thick. You can't, you know, you only, you're a junkie. That's why you defend opiates. You're this, you're that. Enjoy your pills. Enjoy your medication. Enjoy your high. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And (laughs) these these press releases, I mean, they do these dope sick lovers from that Hulu thing that that's been on that everyone seems to, to love. It's almost like a cult following. They come to our groups and on Twitter and on Facebook they seek us out just to t- call us junkies and and make fun of us and blame us for the the death of their loved ones and you know it's so incredibly sad but when these DEA agents when the DOJ puts out press releases explaining or bragging about that how they have arrested another doctor the thing that they're not saying is what's happening a lot of times is they're the DOJ has and even like uh, insurance companies. They're providing undercover agents and insurance companies are providing fake imaging, fake electronic health records. They go to the doctor and they play a role and they pretend and they have this fake stuff. And then when the doctor prescribes, they arrest them. And it's, 
I don't understand how it's allowed. How is that even legal? For, how is that not entrapment? Do you know? No, no but we're going to have Ron Chapman on the show, attorney Ron Chapman. I will say that I spoke with an insider at the DEA and they told me that the DEA drug take back day was a colossal failure. There was nothing returned <laughs> unless you consider uh, a, a gazillion gabapentin pills to be a success and uh, old bottles of God only knows what Pepto-Bismol. It was a, it was a, it was an, <laughs> a failure, just like Shatterproof's drug take back day. You're only a friggin' idiot is going to return drugs. <laughs> I would never return any kind of controlled substance to a pharmacy now. And, you know, years ago, if you hear, if you listen to the early hearings about when OxyContin started getting prescribed in abundance and they would say, oh, if we could just catch the drug seekers with the PDMP, the prescription database, then we'll solve this crisis. Or, you know, if we could just have drug take back days to get the extra pills out of the cabinet. But Kalami loves this line where he says, um, you know, it's not the, the grandmother's fault who have the drugs in their cabinet that people are taking. It's the doctor's fault. And what we should be asking is, why does everyone's little grandmother have these drugs in their cabinet? He loves that. But they got everything they wanted. They got PDMP. They got, um, you know, so no one can really doctor shop in any of this stuff. And they got all of that done. And drug overdoses have skyrocketed. I think it's over 108,000 now in a 12-month period. That recent Frontier article, which we'll link also under the show notes, shows that um, I think it said from 2010 to 2019, there was absolutely zero link between prescription opioid sales and even um, a like addiction admissions into treatment or death. So there's no link. And so um, they put in the results that they think that the, that the CDC needs to release a statement and all these places need to release a statement that says this has nothing to do with prescribing, but they're not. I mean, people like Andrew Kalani and Prop, they still say there's tremendous overprescribing. So, you know, we're down to the level it was in 1992, which was before OxyContin. So what is it going to be low enough is my question. Yeah, when probably when the the till runs dry and there's no more money to be made on the con of the century, I mean this this is the crime of the century. Absolutely, this, this right here, yeah, the opioid hysteria, uh, and now people with, you know, with cancer. Like, come on. And the thing is, like. You know, no one's going to say, first of all, the term overprescribing needs to go because overprescribing implies that there is a certain standard of care, which there is not. If we want to talk about the actual true pill mills of the 90s, like the ones in Florida, these were doctors who did act as drug dealers. These were people who that wasn't truly patients in pain. You could just go in there, get whatever medication you wanted and leave. They weren't overprescribing. They were drug dealing. But those days are long gone. So we need to do away with this term overprescribing because it doesn't exist. There's no such thing because really what they're talking about with overprescribing, I think is any prescribing is considered overprescribing. I mean, I think they just want, they want no prescribing other than, you know, Suboxone or Methadone for people with addiction. And you know what? That's another thing. Honestly, I do think that a lot of people with addiction would do a lot better on a full agonist than Suboxone, but it's just, it's the only thing they're offered. It helps a lot of people, but why is that the only thing they're allowed? Like, why not give people what, what they actually need to keep them from relapsing? But I don't know if that'll ever happen in our country. Because then you don't need the DEA. Let the drug user have their drug of choice. Exactly right. And let's, so 
So let's talk about before um, we end, wrap this up, let's talk about how do we find out if it's in our medical records and what to do about it if it's there? First of all, to find out if it's in your medical record, we do suggest for all patients, for every, definitely every hospital visit or any visit to your pain management doctor, that you have a standing request for your medical records and make sure you include that you want doctor's notes in addition to, the, to, to just the plain medical records. Don't do it in an aggressive way. Don't say, I want to see what you're putting in there about me. Just say something like, oh, I'm trying to uh, keep good track of all my appointments. And this is, I'm keeping a, a notebook at home with all of this information. So I'd like in certified mail requiring a signature receipt so you have evidence. But I would only, I would wait to do that until to see if they're actually denying you first. We also have linked, um, I'll link information here. We have it on our website about how much each state has a different cap on what they could charge for records. If they give it to you electronically, they should not charge. But if they give it to you in paper, they can charge and we'll have that information for you. But once you get your medical records, if you need help understanding them, please contact us. Well, we're more than happy to help you. Again, we do not charge. There is that lovely rumor that we charge to help patients. We absolutely don't. We'd love to help you understand your records. And then if it's in your chart, let's talk about what to do. Um, you can't get something removed from your chart. I don't know any state that would that would actually take it out. But if you, I would absolutely put this in writing and I would send this also certified letter, signature receipts, so you have evidence and you clearly say, I do not agree with this information. I would like it to be amended to say that I was not drug seeking, that I don't have opioid use disorder. They must respond to you if you send a request like that. By law, they must respond to you. And then um, they have to, at least at the minimum, put it in your record. So even if they don't amend it, they have to put that letter that you sent um, so that another doctor looking at it could at least see that you were saying this wasn't true. And that's the best we could do for now, at least. Keep an eye on your records, know what's in there. I mean, that situation in the hospital, Claudia, I didn't even know it was in my records until uh, Maya was writing that article. And I requested it for the records for like a fact checker. And uh, I was mortified. Like it really it devastated me. I was actually traumatized when I read it because the stuff they put in there were such blatant lies. Like one of the things they put in there is when they asked me, when they told me when I leave, if, if my pain gets worse to come back. And I said to them, I would actually rather die at home from a heart attack than ever step foot in this hospital again. And he, even there, they said, well, you're lucky we don't hold you for suicidal ideation. But then in the medical records, he said, patient said, and they put quotes, what would happen if I go home and kill myself? And then another thing they said, I told him I was afraid I would dehydrate again because that's, I, I tend to vomit when I have uncontrolled pain. And in the records, he said, patient threatened to dehydrate on, on purpose to access IV opioids. None of that is true. Um, I wish I knew then what I know now. The best thing you could do is be educated about what's in your records and at least send a letter to uh, request it to be amended. All right. Bev, great, great information. Uh, I want to just add one thing because I, I receive a lot of phone calls from people when they're in the emergency room. And folks, if you're hurt at home, if you, you know, get in a, let's say you're in a car accident, you're hurt, something, acute pain. When you go to the emergency room, don't give the provider 
uh, a laundry list of mm. everything that's wrong with you. Don't you don't need to say I have RSD and pancreatitis. I have this and I have that. Mm. Stick with why you're there because that just I almost feel like that's enough for a red flag. And you have to proceed with caution because a lot of these emergency providers they don't work for the hospital. They're with a contract. And I'm not a fan of the ER doc to begin with, especially the young ones that are out there now. So j- just be careful. Um, and I know it's hard, but uh, I mean, we have one, a- an attorney with pancreatitis. He spent the night in jail because he was crying too loudly. So we are trying to get you folks help. I promise you, we're trying to get you folks help. Thank you for uh, tuning into this episode of the Dr. Patient Forum. This is episode two, discussing drug-seeking behavior. Bev, your research is stellar. Thank you. Thank you. And I do a lot of my research with Carrie Judy. Um, I think I said last time we do send each other information basically all day. It's kind of an obsession, but I'm not going to stop until this is fixed. I do want to add to what you were saying, Claudia. That's an excellent point because I think pain patients, I think we, we feel sometimes if we give them more things, more reasons why we would be in pain, that they're more likely to treat us. And I do kind of think that that Um, tends to be the opposite. Like, you know, people with, I have Crohn's and I have psoriatic arthritis and people tend to collect autoimmune diseases once you have one, but I don't, I would, I would pick the, the, the top illness um, and the reason you're there and then leave the rest off, especially there's some things they always consider a red flag, such as fibromyalgia. That's actually worked into some risk scores um, about uh, what's a red flag for a drug seeker. So if you have other things and fibromyalgia, I would just leave that off uh, because automatically the doctor is going to assume you're drug seeking. And then the only other thing we recommend, if possible, take someone with you when you go to a doctor's office, take someone with you to the emergency room, to the hospital, especially. And if you're unable to record the visit, just press record, you know, make sure if you're in a one party or two party state, but press record, have that information because, and we've heard some of these recordings and I've been shocked at some of the ways the doctors have treated. Terrible, terrible. All right, folks, thanks for taking. We went in a little over time today. We're going to try and keep these podcasts to 45 minutes so we don't lose the listener audience. Don't forget, you can follow Bev and myself, Bev Sheckman, IBD girl, Claudia Mirandi. Claudia Mirandi, I think that's... Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of our podcast at the Dr. Patient Forum. You could find our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Please follow us. And if you feel like leaving us a review, that would be great. I did want to mention that the doctor I quoted from Twitter was Dr. Stefan Kertes. His name got cut off and I wanted to make sure to add that there. Again, you can reach us at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. If you want to tweet us about this episode, feel free to use the hashtag DPF2 for Dr. Patient Forum episode two. Again, hashtag DPF2. Thank you so much.